Now remain standing for our gospel lesson and the sermon text from John 3. Listen carefully to the gospel of God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water or many waters there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled or complete, filled up. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, that no one receive, but and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe, to understand and believe your word and to go out from here as doers of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to remind you, most of you probably got one of these handouts, the sermon outline with some application points at the bottom. And I want to encourage you on how to use this the the best way. The best way to use it is not to try to fill it out as fast as you can and to look up uh, at the word bank up top and and try to fill it in during the sermon. The best way to approach it is just to fill it, if you're going to follow it, is to fill it in as I go through And see if you can do it without referring to the word bank the first time. And then after the sermon, you know, during the uh, during the offering, maybe you can check and see and and fill in Uh, that that'll be the best way to use it. 
I don't know if you guys knew about the rule in our denomination that when the preacher's birthday lands on a Sunday, he gets to preach as long as he wants. So, but that applies today. Also, by the way, when when the title is different between the bulletin and the handout, go with the handout because I do the handout after I do the bulletin. Sometimes I change things a little bit. So the title in the handout is Purifying Bridegroom, Preeminent Son. Because verses 22 to 36 of John chapter 3 present Jesus as the bridegroom who purifies his bride and as the son who is preeminent over all things. The word bridegroom just means husband. Jesus is the bridegroom who purifies his bride. And the word preeminent means surpassing all others or above all, to use the scriptural, scriptural phrase here. Christ is not just greater than John. He also surpasses everyone in everything. He is above all the preeminent son. Jesus is the purifying bridegroom and the preeminent son. And the key verse in our passage is probably John 3, 30. Where John says of Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's really the central message. Jesus must increase and you must decrease. And this central message is related to the title. You see, because Jesus is the preeminent son who is over everything, he must increase and you must decrease. Because Jesus is the purifying bridegroom who purifies you, He must increase and you must decrease. When your purifier increases, your holiness increases, your sin decreases. You want your joy to be full as John's joy was full in verse 29. Then Jesus must increase in your life and you must decrease. If you want to experience the fullness, the fulfillment of joy, which is available to you, then the one who purifies you and the one who is preeminent over everything must increase and you must decrease. The first point on your outline says Christ is the purifying bridegroom. He purifies his bride. And the verses I give for this, you'll notice in parentheses, are verses 22 to 30. But it's not obvious that that this is the main point of verses 22 to 30. So where am I getting this? Where does this paragraph teach us that Christ is the purifier who purifies his bride? To see this, we need to read the paragraph carefully, beginning at verse 22 and working our way through. Verse 22 says, And these things Jesus and his disciples, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there, He remained with them and baptized. Verse 23. Now John was also baptizing in Enon near Salem. Because there was much water, many waters, many streams, many fountains there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So the context, the situation is set for us. We have two bands of baptizers. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in one place, and John and his disciples are baptizing in another place. According to verse 
25, this triggers a dispute over purification. That's the topic of the, de- of the dispute. The debate is purification. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. This might seem out of place. Like, what, why does it matter? What's this verse put in here for? But really, verse 25 is, is a key to unlocking the purpose, part of the purpose of this paragraph. The gospel writer does not tell us much. He doesn't give us many details about this dispute other than to say that it was about purification. Now, it appears that the dispute between John's disciples and the Jews was very likely over the nature of John's baptism. John's baptism was a purification rite. It was a cleansing ritual or ceremony. The other gospel writers call it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we can easily imagine what this dispute was about. The Jews were probably telling John's disciples that John's baptism was apparently not the real deal. Otherwise, why would Jesus be baptizing? And why would everyone, including some of John's own disciples, be going to Jesus to be baptized? Now, John's disciples knew their Old Testament. They likely believed that John's baptism was the fulfillment of Isaiah 44 and 45 and Ezekiel 36. As we saw last week and the week before, Isaiah 44 speaks of a time in the future when God would pour water on His dry and thirsty people, His dry and thirsty land. Ezekiel 36 similarly speaks of a time when God would sprinkle clean water on his people and purify them from uncleanness. These two prophecies are pointing to the same reality that's a few hundred years into the future from where they're prophesying. During the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, God's people were eagerly expecting the fulfillment of these prophecies from Isaiah 44 and Ezekiel 36 in particular. But how God was going to pour or sprinkle pure water on his people. That's, by the way, a big reason why we pour or sprinkle in baptism because of these prophecies. That's not the only reason, but good reasons. Surely John's disciples believe that John's baptism fulfilled these prophecies about the promised purifying water. Surely they believed That John's baptism was the water that God was pouring on his people in his dry land. Surely John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins was the clean water that God had promised to sprinkle on his people to purify them. But if this is the case, if that's so, why are Jesus and his disciples also baptizing? And why are more people going to Jesus than to John? Was John's baptism not enough? Was it not a true fulfillment of Isaiah 44 and Ezekiel 36? The gospel writer doesn't tell us much about this dispute, but you get the impression that the Jews are trying to poke holes in the legitimacy 
of John's purifying, purification ritual, his baptism. You also get the sense that John's disciples are taking offense. They're disturbed. They're troubled by this dispute. They see the point that their fellow Jews are making, and it drives them to go and talk to John, their teacher, their rabbi. So in verse 26, the disciples of John the Baptist come to him. They say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, they distanced themselves a little from Jesus there, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. In other words, what's the deal? What's going on? How do you explain this? Everyone going to Jesus to be purified. Is your baptism not what Isaiah and Ezekiel are pointing to? What's going on? And in the following verses, John gives a series of responses that are all related. They they might seem disconnected, but they're all related. They answer different aspects, different facets of this problem that his disciples are seeing. First, in verse 27, he says, A man can receive nothing unless unless it has been given to him from above, from heaven. Now, this has a two-sided meaning. On the one hand, it means that faith is God's gift to believers, to the believer. No man can come to Jesus unless God gives him the faith to come to Jesus. That's what John 6, 65 says. A couple chapters, a few chapters later, listen to John 6, 65. And Jesus said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him, given to him by my father. On the other hand, verse 27 means that the believer is God's gift to Jesus. No man can come to Jesus unless God gives him to Jesus. That's what John 6, 37 says. Listen to John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So what John is telling his disciples in John 3, 27 is this. The reason all these people are going to Jesus is that the Father has given them to Jesus. The Father is giving them the faith to come to Jesus. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father gives them to him and gives them the faith to come to him. This teaching is throughout the whole Bible, but it's really a truth that's taught very clearly by Jesus in the book of John. You, brothers and sisters in Christ, are the Father's gift to the Son. You are a gift between the Father and the Son. And your faith is 100% a gift from the Father to you. So the Father gives gifts. He gives you faith and he gives Jesus you. You didn't come up with even 1% of your faith. If God had not given you all of your faith, you would not have come to Jesus in a million years. In verse 28, John gets closer to the heart of the gospels of the disciples' concern. He says, you yourselves bear witness to me 
that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. In essence, John is saying to his disciples, what's the problem here? You've heard me say I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. I went out of my way to tell you that there's one greater than I am coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Why are you so surprised that people are flocking to the true shepherd, the true purifier? As far as John the Baptist is concerned, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. Then in verse 29, John brings the subject back around to purification. As I read verse 29, know that this is a metaphor or analogy. The bridegroom is Jesus. The bride is the church, the people of God. And the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, is John the Baptist. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Remember, John was the voice in the wilderness, but now he's saying, I'm, my joy is complete because I hear the voice of the one I was pointing to. Now, you may be wondering how this verse, verse 29, brings us back to the topic of purification. What, what's, what's John's wedding analogy have to do with purification? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom who purifies his bride. One of the things that Jesus does as our husband is to purify us, to cleanse us. The clearest place to see this is in Ephesians 5, which I read Earlier, we'll get back to Ephesians five. But first, I want to remind you of something from Revelation 21. Listen to Revelation 21, verse nine. Come, I will show you the bride. Which is the wife of the lamb. You see, the bride, which is the church, God's people, is the wife of the lamb. This means that the lamb is our husband. Our husband is a lamb, the lamb of God. The lamb is our bridegroom. And what does the lamb do for his bride? He dies and takes away our sins. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb of God is the bridegroom who purifies his bride by dying for her. Ephesians 5 spells spells this out for us. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church, his bride, and gave himself for her. Christ is the bridegroom who gave himself up for the bride. He died for his bride. So the first point, sub-point, I should say, in your outline is that the bridegroom dies for his bride. The story of Scripture From beginning to end, the story of Scripture is a story of a bridegroom who comes and dies for his bride. From Genesis 3 on. Jesus purifies his bride precisely by dying for her. The blood of Christ, the blood that he shed on the cross, 
for you purifies you. The Holy Spirit sprinkles the blood of Jesus on your heart and makes you clean. Hebrews 9.22 says, Almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. It's sprinkled with blood in context. Sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This verse, interestingly, brings together the blood that is sprinkled on our hearts and the water that is applied to our bodies in baptism. Both of these are purifying. Both of these purify us. Both the blood on our hearts and the water on our bodies are purifying acts of our bridegroom. These are his actions. His grace to us. When Richard was baptized this morning, it was not me primarily doing the action. It was God pouring out his water on Richard, giving Richard his promises. But the blood on our hearts is fundamental. It's the foundation. Real purification can happen in you only because Jesus died for you and bled for you. And sprinkled that blood on you, on your hearts. The second subpoint on your outline is that the bridegroom sanctifies his bride. These are obviously very related, almost different ways of saying the same thing. But, but this is the logic in Ephesians 5. That's what Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 make clear. Listen as I read Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Christ gave himself for his bride so that. He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. It's baptism that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You see, again, how. Another biblical writer brings together the the two purifying. Acts of God, the blood on the cross, his giving him of himself for us on the cross, and the water, the washing of water by the word in baptism. Your bridegroom died for you in order to sanctify you. The word sanctify means make holy. Jesus, the bridegroom, died for his bride to make her holy. He wants to make you holy. He has made you holy. And he wants you to grow in that holiness. He died so that could happen. He died to purify you. Once and for all on the cross, he died so that you could be purified. Not just once, but in an ongoing manner. And and his purification, Christ's purification, is the real deal. The blood of the bridegroom truly purifies because it's the blood of the lamb, the lamb bridegroom. The washing of water and baptism also cleanses those who believe in the blood, who trust in the blood, who look to the blood of Christ alone for their salvation. 
There's no sin that the purifying bridegroom cannot purify. That's something that all of us really need to believe. You have never done anything that puts you out of reach of the cleansing blood and the cleansing water of Christ. It's impossible to defile yourself so badly that the purifying bridegroom cannot purify you. When the bridegroom died for your sins on the cross, he did something that was far greater, far more powerful than your greatest, worst sins. God's grace in Christ is greater than all your sins. There is cleansing power in the blood of the bridegroom that surpasses all other, that is above all. John knew that he was not that bridegroom who could do this, who could provide this. He was just the bridegroom's friend. His job was to point people to the bridegroom. So when his disciples came to tell him that every, everybody's going to get baptized with Jesus and his disciples, John took this as a sign that he has done his job. Things were going the right way. He didn't mess up too badly at least. The bridegroom is getting all the attention. And that's exactly what John wanted. That's what he was holding out for. It's what he was hoping would happen. All eyes are on the bridegroom and his bride. Everyone is watching them and throwing rice on them. No one's looking at the bridegroom's friend over on the church steps. Smiling. The voice of the bridegroom has replaced the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. And this completes John's joy. It doesn't kill his joy. It makes his joy complete. Look at the end of verse 29. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled, filled up, made complete. And then verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Nothing brought John greater joy than when he could see that Jesus was increasing. John, as John was decreasing. The further away John got from center stage, the happier he was. John wasn't in it for John. John was in it for Jesus. He wanted all eyes on Jesus, all hearts on Jesus. John's joy peaked out when his disciples brought him this news. Is that what brings you your greatest joy? Is your joy complete when you are decreasing and Jesus is increasing in your life? Second main point, an outline, is that Christ is the preeminent son. He's above all. Verse 31 emphasizes that Christ is above all or from heaven. Above all, it says again, it says it twice there. It's a redundant verse to drive home the point. 
And John's point in the final verses of John 3 is that the Son of God is not just greater than John the Baptist. He's also greater than everything and everyone. He's preeminent over all things in heaven and on earth. He's above all. And there are three ways in which he is above all. The first, the Son of God is above all regarding his origin. Second, he's above all regarding his word or testimony. And third, he's above all regarding his resources. Let's take these one at a time briefly. First, verse 31 says that the Son is above all <coughs> regarding his origin. <coughs> he is from heaven, which means he's from, from the very presence and heart of God. John the Baptist is from earth. He's a mere human. He came from the human processes of, of generation. Not so with Jesus. He comes from heaven. He comes from God. In fact, he is God. The son of God is very God of very God. Begotten, but not made, not created. Always existing. Forever existing. Eternally existing with the father. Second, verses 32 to 34 say that the son is above all regarding his word. His testimony is preeminent. Above everyone else's testimony. This is connected to the first point. You see, the reason Christ's word is preeminent, the reason Christ's testimony is above all, is that he testifies to what he has seen and heard in heaven. He has insight that no one else has. The words that Jesus speaks are God's words. And to further guarantee the truthfulness of his words, the spirit of God is given to the son without limit, without measure, it says. Verse 34 says that the father has given the Holy Spirit to the son without limit, without measure. An infinite amount. Just as God is infinite. John the Baptist and all the other prophets who came before him received a measure of the spirit, but not so with Jesus. Jesus doesn't just receive a measure of the spirit. He receives the spirit in fullness, without limit, overflowing. Third, and finally, the son is above all regarding his resources. Not only has the father given the Holy Spirit to his son without measure, he has also given his son everything he has, which is everything. The Father has put everything He has into the hand of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus has the Holy Spirit without measure, and He has everything that the Father has too. So it's, co- it's comprehensive. It covers everything. He lacks nothing. But there's more. This also means that you lack nothing. You belong to Jesus, you share in this, and therefore you lack nothing either. It means that if you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you, you too have the Holy Spirit without measure. In Jesus, you have access to what the Father has given to the Son. You are 
co-heirs with Christ, Paul says. That's why Paul says in another place, Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. The power that is at work within us is the power of Christ and his spirit. That's good news. Those who are trusting and obeying Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, have the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit within them. To know that power, you must know Jesus. To experience that power, you must encounter, you must be encountering Jesus. During the final minutes of the sermon, I want to discuss briefly the four points of application at the bottom of your handout. These flow from the passage that we just discussed. First, there's no third option. You will either experience eternal life or eternal wrath. It'll it'll be one of the other for sure. That's the clear teaching of this whole chapter, especially verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Verse 36 is a fitting summary of John chapter 3, whose message is this. Trusting and obeying Jesus leads to eternal life, but refusing to trust and obey Jesus leads to eternal life. Death, eternal separation from God. Everyone is conceived under God's wrath. That's a hard truth that we must face. We must deal with and not shrink back from. We are all by nature children of wrath. Only those who receive Jesus, only those who believe on his name, only those who are purified, In his blood. Only those who lose their life. And take up the cross. And follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Only those who know God. And obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will escape. The eternal wrath. Of God. Those who do not obey. Remain. Abide. Under God's wrath. And they will remain there forever. If they do not repent. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says that God will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you know God? Are you obeying the gospel? Are you living it out? It must be more than just something that you say you believe. It must also make some kind of difference in your life. Otherwise, you really Don't believe it. Second, you are not the center. God is. The Christian life is not about getting God into your story. It's about getting your life into God's story. God is telling a story. What do you know about this story? Do you know where it's going? Do you know where we are in this story do you know your place in it do you understand what which character you are 
what your role is? Or are you only interested in your personal story? The one where you take center stage and everything revolves around you. Are you so wrapped up in your narrative that you know little or nothing about the narrative that God is telling and is inviting you to join? Is your life centered on God's kingdom or on your kingdom? The Christian life is not about asking God to make your life better. It's about losing your life to advance the kingdom of God. You should not be the one who is at the center of your life. The center belongs to Jesus. John the Baptist believed this and he lived it. And that's the difference you see between John the Baptist and at least some of John the Baptist's disciples. John put Jesus at the center of his life, but at least some of his disciples were threatened by Jesus. They sensed conflict and competition when Jesus was around. They felt like Jesus was encroaching on their territory. They balked at the idea of decreasing so that Jesus could increase. Are you like John or are you like his disciples? Do you sense conflict or competition when Jesus is around? Is he cramping your lifestyle? Are you unwilling to let him encroach on certain parts of your heart that you've reserved just for you? You can stay the center there. Do his commands feel restrictive? Do his demands on you seem unnecessary, over the top? Are you trying to believe in Jesus with your brain without giving him your heart? If so, you're putting yourself at the center instead of Jesus. But you are not the center, God is. Third, when Jesus increases, your joy increases. Actually, that's only half, it's only partly true. It's only true if you're like John. You have his perspective. When John heard that Jesus was increasing, his joy was filled up and was overflowing. It peaked out there. If you're like John, then nothing brings you greater joy than to see your kingdom shrink. To see your idols knocked down and destroyed as Christ's kingdom grows, as Jesus becomes bigger in your eyes. But if you're like John's disciples, then your joy decreases as Jesus increases. Even the thought of it affects your joy. Nothing gives you greater concern than to see your kingdom shrink, to see Jesus encroaching on your plans your ideas of how the world should work. Your story and your kingdom are all you've got. And you have to hang on to it if you're like one of Jesus' disciples. You see, John is our example here. Train your heart to love nothing more than becoming less as Jesus becomes more. Only a true follower of Christ can accept his own demise with joy. Fourth and finally. You are both a friend of the bridegroom. And a member of the bride. And so be both. 
John the Baptist was both the friend of the bridegroom and he was a member of the bride at a different level, at another level. He was a member of the people of God. And your calling is similar to John's dual calling. As the friend of the bridegroom, you are to point people away from you and to Jesus. Your entire mission is to glorify the bridegroom. To fade into the background. Your central purpose in life is to serve the bridegroom and to build his kingdom. You also have a role as a member of the bride. As a member of God's bride, you must allow yourself to be served by Christ. You don't have more to offer Christ than he has to offer you. You need much more from him than you have to offer him. You need far more from him than he needs from you. Because he needs nothing from you. A major difference between you and God, between you and Jesus, is that he needs absolutely nothing from you. He wants everything, but he needs nothing. And yet you need everything from him. You have have nothing to offer him or to offer yourself apart from him. You're only able to serve Jesus as his friend Because he has first purified you and made you a member of his bride. If you're able to imitate John even a little bit in his desire to become less as Jesus becomes more. You're able to do that. It's only because Jesus first became less on the cross so that you could become more. And so now we see that it's not just John that we are imitating. It is Jesus, primarily, that we are imitating. On the cross, Jesus decreased so that you could increase. He became poor, Paul says, so that you could become rich. And in response to that, you are to imitate it. Imitate him. He is calling you, the one who died for you, is calling you to believe this, to accept it, and then to go out and imitate it, to take up your cross and to follow him in becoming less so that he and his kingdom and his people can become more. I'll let Paul have the last word from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, for you know that grace of our, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you might become rich through his poverty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself up for us. Thank you for becoming poor so that we could become rich. Help us to imitate you, to follow you, to accept your gift, to accept 
your forgiveness. To accept your purification. To walk in it. To grow in it. And then to take up our cross. And to become less ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.